Hello and welcome to this new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Here we are in Atlanta at the 2023 annual meeting of the American Public Health Association. And my dear friend and colleague and co-host, Professor Vicky Mays, here we are uh, going to discuss about the health of immigrants in this country with Professor Maria Elena de Trinidad Young. Welcome, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Please tell our audience a little bit more about you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am an assistant professor at the University of California, Merced. And at UC Merced, I do research trying to understand how immigration policy influences public health. And so it's really kind of thinking about how do we measure policy? How do we capture its effects on immigrant and also kind of broader communities and sort of understanding immigration policy as health policy? And I want to thank you because I think we published your work, some of your work. I should thank you. (laughs) It's our pleasure. It's it's very central. Your preoccupation and your interests are very central to those of the journal. So I'm going to start with a question because I'm just intrigued by a title that you have, which is you're looking at issues within immigrants. Can you talk about the within Yes. Well, I think two things. One is that a lot of research on immigrant health has traditionally used a U.S.-born population Mm -hmm. as a baseline. And a really important part of understanding health inequities is is to kind of go deeper than sort of, you know, white versus people of color or, you know, U.S.-born versus foreign-born and to think about the potential for differences, you know, within an immigrant population. Mm -hmm. So that sort of motivated the desire to do a study that exclusively included foreign-born individuals. But the second piece of that is that a lot of the research currently that has been done on immigration policy and health sort of looks at how policies have a broad impact on all populations. And so there's kind of theories around sort of spillover effects or chilling effects, this idea that if an restrictive policy is in place, for example, a policy that promotes immigration enforcement, that it can have an impact on people even if they don't personally ever experience enforcement. And there's some pretty strong evidence that if you live in a state, for example, that where it is authorized for local law enforcement to work with immigration authorities, even if you never have contact with police or you never have contact with immigration authorities, if you're an immigrant, that can have detrimental impacts on your health. That said, we also know those policies are designed to directly target individuals with surveillance, policing, and even potential deportation. So those are what we really think of as the kind of the inequitable or differential impacts of policies within immigrant populations. And so in our study, we really wanted to understand sort of who's being most directly harmed by different immigration policies. Who are these individuals and do they have worse health outcomes than other immigrants who maybe live within that kind of policy environment, but don't directly have the directly targeted or experience the consequences of policy. Let me make sure I understand. So are you looking at U.S. policies? Are you looking at global policies? And U.S. policies. Okay. So in looking at the U.S. policies, are you trying to look at policies we already have in place? Or are you trying to see what those policies are, and advocate for new policies. Yeah. So right now, immigrants, and particularly non-citizens in the U.S., live under an incredible patchwork of policies that are enacted at the federal level, 
the state level, uh, and even the local level. Okay. And, and there's been different research sort of looking at different policies, some federal, some state. Mm-hmm. And with this study, what we wanted to do was sort of understand what's it like to live under patchwork mm-hmm. of these policies. And mm-hmm. in this particular study that I'm kind of talking with you about today, we focus on one state, California. So in a sense, we held the the federal level constant and we held the state level constant to sort of get at mm-hmm. the variation that you might experience within a single state. But we identified what were the policies currently in place in California at the time that we were going to do the survey so that we could have questions that would correspond with what the actual policy environment was. Certainly always with the long-term hope of being able to change policy and advocate for change in the future. So people usually compare the immigrant population with the non-immigrant population, but you took the immigrant population and tried to understand, disaggregate, actually, the inequities within this population. So which population did you study? Great. So the study was specifically focused on immigrants who were born in any region of Latin America. And so in the U.S. context, we would consider them Latinos, though they themselves certainly have different terms they identify Mm -hmm. themselves by, and immigrants born in any country of Asia except for the Middle East. And Mm. so is really kind of focus was Asian and Latino immigrants, adults at the time of the study, but that who had were foreign born to parents who themselves were originally from those countries. How did you do that? Uh, How how did you do that study, which I think the acronym is RIGHTS, and you have to tell us what this means. Yes, the acronym of the study is the RIGHTS study. It's the Research on Immigrant Health and State Policy Study. Uh A little bit of a mouthful, but it's simple once you get down to the the RIGHTS. So it was a mixed method study in, in which we developed a survey and administered it to a population of foreign born Latino and Asians in California. And the the main way we were able to do this survey was that we worked in collaboration with colleagues at the California Health Interview Survey. They lead the largest state-level health survey in the country, and they already have very successfully established a diverse population of respondents. So every year they capture Californians of every race, ethnic background, and foreign-born and even different citizenship statuses. So they, they include undocumented immigrants, for example, in their survey. And so what we were able to do was build a survey that would be a follow-up to the CHIS. So if somebody took the CHIS, they answered the questions, you know, gave all the inf- kind of extensive information about their health, their health care access. At the end, if they were um, somebody who, you know, fit the criteria of being Latino or Asian and foreign-born, they were invited to take the right study and then do the right survey. And so it was a really sort of leveraging an existing survey infrastructure to get information from a very hard-to-reach population. Brilliant. And so how did the, the population react? This is a really great question and one that we went into the study with eyes wide open and just a lot of thoughtfulness. I will say first, we, we convened a community advisory board. Any sort of work with immigrant populations, you want to be in touch with organizations that are working on the front lines with these communities. And so every piece that we developed for the study, we were in touch with the advisory board. Like, well, what do you think of this? And the, the questions that are in the survey, they informed what questions we would prioritize. As we were getting ready to do recruitment, we would, ha- you know, we had to have recruitment letters. All the participants received a letter kind of letting them know they would be invited to do the study. They weighed in on the study um, and on the language we were using, which was really helpful. But then once we started, actually, we fielded the survey, 
what we found was that people were absolutely okay answering our questions. And we had some sensitive questions. We asked about things like wage theft. We asked about uh, concerns about a public charge, which is a federal regulation that deems some people ineligible for a green card if they've used public benefits. We asked people about deportation. We actually had a 100% response, um, item response for every single one of those questions. Um, people were willing to answer these difficult, I think, but important questions. What is wage theft? Wage theft is a, broad, a term that applies to any sort of situation where somebody does not receive pay for work done. And that could mean you worked your nine to five and your employer didn't give you a check, but it can also mean you work nine to five and then your employer said, hey, you've got to stay on another few hours, but I'm only going to pay you for the eight hours. It's sort of the when an employer does not give a person their due compensation under state law for, for work done. The California Health Interview Survey, which you did a great job about its size and its representativeness. So what happens is that after the original respondent is there, they're asked, would you be willing to participate in another study? So the people that you've gotten are people who not only are representative, but are willing. So I'm so thrilled to hear the kind of questions you asked. So can you talk a little bit about the findings that you had and how, for example, it's different in terms of, you know, kind of the two groups that you use? Because I would imagine that policies have been very differentially applied. Well, so the final survey had 23 different questions asking people whether or not simple yes, no, they had ever experienced some sort of exclusion under policy. And an exclusion could have happened because a policy was targeting them. So, for example, we asked people about racial profiling, if they'd ever been racially profiled by police. But an exclusion could also happen if there was a right that had been denied them. So, for example, in California, you have a right to a medical interpreter if you go to the hospital. So one of our questions was, were you ever denied medical interpretation? So we had 23 of these different questions getting at these exclusions. And I'd say the first standout finding And this goes back to your original question about like these inequities. These experiences that we were asking about were not uncommon. That is to say that while policy has a broad reaching impact just generally by creating kind of xenophobic environments, people are also contending day to day with direct exclusions, not getting the medical interpretation that they need, avoiding public benefits that they need or ineligible and are actually eligible for because of public charge, being denied work opportunities because of their legal status, having wages denied them, and then being racially profiled in their communities and knowing people who are deported. So I'll highlight just a couple of statistics. One in three respondents had reported that they would not use a public benefit they needed because of public charge rule. Uh, One in three people in the survey knew somebody who'd been deported. And one in three had experienced wage theft, having wages denied. So these are really, I think, it gives us pause in terms of thinking about the consequences of these policies. So that's sort of the descriptive findings. Then we did a bunch of fancy analyses that I won't use the, (laughs) the, the terms for. But when we look at how those experiences correspond with people's health outcomes, we found the more experiences you've had, the more likely to you're going to report having experienced psychological distress in the last year, and the more likely you'll respond that you have delayed needed health care in the last year. And that was pretty consistent across all the different policy areas. 
But did you see differences between those from the Latin countries and those from the Asian countries? Great question. And this was something that was really interesting because going in, we hypothesized, yes, we would see differences. And we also hypothesized that we would see differences in health outcomes. And what we ended up finding was that overall, the Latino immigrants reported higher levels of all the exclusions. Um, And that's not so surprising. A lot of these policies are very racializing. They've sort of some are very, I would even call like anti-Latino, they've sort of been designed mm-hmm. to racialize this population. The numbers were not small, though. For So, for example, racial profiling, 16% of Latinos reported ever being racially profiled, 12% of Asians reported ever being racially profiled. So there were differences. But the key thing that we found is once we looked at the health outcomes, it didn't matter the person's race or ethnicity. If they experienced the exclusion, it was associated with worse health outcomes. So while, so if we think about it at a population level, more Latinos in California are contending with knowing somebody who was deported. But if an Asian person knows somebody who was deported, it's the same risk for poor health as for a Latino person. But is deportation as common in one population than the other? It's much more common amongst Latinos. And in our sample, about 44% of the Latino respondents knew somebody who was deported. So all, it's like almost one in two. But this was some of the first population data available from Asian immigrants. One in 10 Asian immigrants knew somebody who's deported. And by, by my standards, that is not small. That's quite an impact, although it's not the same as for the Latinos. And to further characterize the population, what proportion were undocumented and which proportion were actually uh, resident? Great question. So everyone was foreign born, so nobody was a U.S. born citizen. About half the sample were naturalized mm-hmm. immigrants. And then of the remaining half, half were green card holders. So about 25% total were green card holders and 25%, the other half were, were undocumented. We, we can say that your finding actually underestimate the true reality because those results must be even worse among undocumented populations. Yeah, I mean, and that's a harder population to reach, but I think a study that had 100% undocumented individuals, we would see these numbers be larger. So in terms of specific policies in the state of California, what's your sense of ones that may be more egregious than others? Great question. So California has been a leader in really enacting a lot of pro-immigrant policies. And Mm so I want to acknowledge that. And there's been some just incredible policymakers who themselves are from immigrant families that have attended, you know, UCs or the California State (laughs) Universities. And so I think it's it's a real exciting place to be working because there's this potential policymakers want to make the change. But I think a couple of places where we see gaps, and I've um, explored this in some of my more recent research since the Wright study, So one piece is that while there are these like labor protections in place, enforcement of those protections is not necessarily that strong. And California is actually the only state in the U.S. that has a law that prohibits employers from using immigration to retaliate against an employee. However, it's still really hard. An undocumented worker isn't necessarily going to go and report their employer for immigration-related retaliation. So there's still just big gaps in terms of ensuring that immigrant workers can report, feel supported, have the legal support that they need. So where I live in the Central Valley of California, it's a very rural agricultural area. It's sort of been described as a legal desert. There's very few lawyers or legal aid nonprofits to help like workers. So that's one big area. And then the second area is that California has 
some of the strongest what we call sanctuary policies that are policies that aim to prevent local law enforcement from engaging with immigration officials. Unfortunately, even in a state like that, we're seeing gaps. And so in the region I live in, which is, again, rural and agricultural and politically more conservative than, let's say, San Francisco or Los Angeles, the local sheriffs have actually violated that law. There was an extensive report done by some of my collaborators at the ACLU that documented this through public request acts. And the law doesn't sort of have the teeth to ensure that these state-level regulations are being implemented at the local level. Those are, you know, protection, legal protection, protection from abuses from the police. But where does public health intervene? How can public health improve the conditions and reduce those types of connection between uh, these racial policies and, uh, and health? Great question. So, I mean, one, I think, is through pushing through policy change, and there's a lot of really exciting collaborations between health departments and health CBOs with advocacy groups that are sort of pushing for change. I mean, I think, indeed, where California is at, while we have gaps, it's still an incredible Mm -hmm. place, and that is the product of public health organizations. But I think the second piece is a lot of some of the core services provided by, like, local public health departments are direct services that and resources that people need and addressing the fears that might exist in the community to facilitate access to those resources is critical. So in work I've done in the region where I live, there's still a lot of fear to, to go to clinics, to, to enroll in Medicaid. California is about to roll out a new Medicaid policy, we call it Medi-Cal, where anybody, as long as they're income eligible, regardless of legal status, can enroll. But there's a huge concern that people aren't going to because of fear. So I think public health is, is really well positioned to foster the trust in the community, and create the bridges to all of these important resources. Can you talk a little bit about what aspect of public health, like what would be the role of the local public health organizations? What would be the role of the community organizations? Because one of the methods in which it's been talked about, and we have done this in LA at Martin Luther King, is we're starting to have property in which you then have it be adjacent to a healthcare facility, and it becomes one-stop shopping almost. That's you have the amazing. lawyers there. You have, you know, so that you come for healthcare, or you come and see the lawyer. We can also get you to go over to see healthcare. Are you all thinking about that in any of the policies that you're attempting to work on in public health? Right now, I'm not, but I love that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm. You know, I, I think still trying to sort of figure out how do we translate these into specific immigration-related policy changes, but I think what you're getting at is this critical thing in actually rethinking the infrastructure of public health. And there's pretty good evidence that medical legal partnerships are really effective. And from what I've heard from community groups who are working on the ground, it's that once they have a trusted provider, they will continue to seek the services there. I know that, like, for example, the promotora or the community health worker Mm -hmm. model has also been expanded a lot throughout California And in California, Medicaid now can reimburse time for community health workers or promotoras. And so I think these are like kind of critical things. It's not been my kind of main area of research at this point, but I'm seeing these and it aligns exactly with what we're seeing from the right study. Like these, these are the gaps. These are the things that are needed. 
And this is where I think public health will benefit from your research. Because so. it, yeah, no, no, it's it's helping them see what are the things that are serving as barriers. And then to realize that as you build a public health intervention, it's not just having an office of public health there, but it's knowing who else, for example, to have a partnership with. And this is what, you know, I have to give a shout out to L.A. County. This is what they did. Yeah. Um, and they provided health coverage for all residents, regardless of legal status, which yes. is incredible. A model, I think, for other communities. I have a question as the editor, you know, and uh, <laughs> because, I mean, immigration is such a large problem in the U.S. I, I mean, people uh, underestimate that apparently it's about 40 million people that all together you know, represent this population. There are huge issues, and we are all concerned by them because when immigrants are not treated the right way, the whole population is concerned and at risk, and uh, there is the situation now in New York City, there is the situation at the border. We, we don't get so much articles and so much research on that population. So I want to know, what, what generated your interest in working in that area and uh, producing such a great research? A couple of things. So I, I grew up in an immigrant family. My mother's family is from Nicaragua. And they came to the U.S. at a time in the mid, you know, kind of around the 1950s, where it was a lot easier to migrate. My grandparents essentially kind of just came to the U.S. It was easy to get a green card. There wasn't this, you know, border to cross that involved physical and emotional risks. My mother was able to go to college. She did her MPH. She actually worked in public health. And oh, so wow. I, and at a time when there was programs for Latino youth to sort of get, you know, support as a fir first-gen student. And so I benefited from inclusive immigrant policies. I benefited from things that help people settle here establish themselves and let have their children have careers contributing back to society. And so when I did started in this field around 2010 was the height of deportations in this country. And I knew how much I had benefited from sort of positive immigration policies. And so entering the workforce as a public health professional, working in Latino communities in California and seeing that people were fearful of deportation, that sort of we were kind of undoing positive things that we've done because of the harms of these enforcement, pro-enforcement, and what I would say call anti-immigrant policies really motivated me to say, well, we, we need to figure out what's going on here. At the time, even just 13 years ago, I, don't, I think the American Journal of Public Health wouldn't necessarily have you know, published a paper saying immigration policy is health policy. Now, now you do, but the field wasn't really talking about it. And so I wanted to be part of talking about it and pushing that we care about the well-being, not just of foreign-born individuals, but the first generation born here, the second generation born here, the communities that rely on immigrants for so many different things, we needed to be talking about it in public health. And so then I did what you do and you get a PhD. <laughs> here, here I am. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much, uh, Maria Elena. Uh, lots of respect and interest in your work. What I really want to say is thank you for taking your lived experience and turning it into very relevant research. I think that's one of the things that we are, you know, seeing that that lived experience can be some of the best research questions. I really encourage you to encourage your students and others to understand thank that you. sometimes that's where we're getting some of our best science. So thank you very much. So this is the end of this podcast with uh, Maria Elena de Trinidad Young. 
who has this work on immigrant population in the United States. And uh, we hosted this podcast with uh, Vicky Mays and myself, Alfredo Moravia, editor-in-chief of the journal. Thank you for listening and bye-bye.